So there, there's three things you can do with the bell. One is to hit it, one is to invite its sound, and the other is to draw the sound out. And um, uh, inviting the sound is, is such a nice thing. What I did right there was hit it. And, uh, you know, I apologize for that, but think of what that says, you know, to people in a room, because I'm sure they get it, right? How what it's did done. you do at the beginning? I, 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 uh, I drew the sound out. Maybe I didn't invite it. Um, but, the, you know, it's kind of metaphorical how we deal with people, isn't it? I mean, those are the three choices. And um, so I'd like to be one of those people who invite, you know, the sound out. And um, in Flint's group today, someone had this 15.5 inch bell that mm -hmm. had the most incredible sound. It was from the same company as mine. Mine's like this big, like eight or 10 inches. And um, wow, it was incredible. Now I think, oh, I don't want to, I want a bigger bell. I want a bigger bell, <laughs> bigger bell. At, at the Austin Zen Center, it's about this big, maybe 24, 30 inches. I don't know, 24 maybe. Um, oh, and then sometimes I'll show you. I, Linda has a little, mo a little model of the biggest bell in Korea, which is as big as this room so but but it's really not the size of the bell it's uh the attitude i think so anyway let's let's start now um who'd like to read it and then we'll talk about it i will okay there's nothing i dislike Linji said, there is nothing I dislike. So what do you all think? I have an, uh, an, uh, uh, an idea, anyhow. Yes. For me, um, there is nothing I dislike is a, it stands in then there's nothing I also like is sort of opposition. So that puts me in the neighborhood of clearly looking at fuzzy because <laughs> to me, liking and disliking are sharp discernments where there's either an emotional reaction or a opinion or a something that's there. That's a, a a discrimination in, in a discrimination in the in the looking at something and assigning it to one thing or another kind of discrimination but so for me nothing i dislike nothing i like is clearly fuzzy okay um, <laughs> i don't know how better to put it yeah no i think you put it well <laughs> melissa there is nothing I dislike. I, you know, the first thought, of course, that came to me was, well, is there anything you like? You know, or do you are you saying you like everything and don't allow yourself to dislike anything? I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, Malin. So to me, the sentence arose the question about what is what you like or what is what you dislike and the assumption that there are those. And then I, um, I thought in the human being realm, and then in other realms, like the animals, or I don't know the name. And I thought that 
little animals like even deer, they do like specific type of corn. <laughs> so they they do like to eat those, but they also like the grass or whatever other thing they have to take. So this con for me suggests that it's important to go back to basic nature or I, I forgot the name, like the, the real, what's the name? I forgot it. The real uh, nature in order to be able to. The natural world, is that? No, the, the, the real nature of human beings, that is not the construct. Oh. Of, yeah, that is not the construct in order to be able to say there is nothing I dislike. Our original self, is that what you're yes. Yeah. Yes, thank okay. you. Nelda? So I'm not being light in saying this. Well, first, let me say thank you all for absolutely wonderful Zen answers. But I'm going to give you my true answer. And whether it comes from my true nature or my conventional self, this is where I am. I know I absolutely positively dislike the taste of guinea pig. I dislike it. I tasted it three times in Peru. It's nasty every single time for me. Hmm. I know I absolutely positively dislike the consequences of some behaviors I've been engaged in and I've watched others being engaged in. Now, if you're taking this koan as nothing like I, I'm supposed to view a person as a whole thing connected to their activities. I don't view people that way. I, uh, you know, I, I see actions as unskillful, not good or bad. And I see actions as supporting life or not supporting life. Um, but there are things I dislike. I dislike the cold. I dislike the taste of guinea pig. I dislike the harmful consequences of some people's actions. But I can also dislike things and honestly say without a doubt that I love everyone and everything. Okay. And Anandia, is there anything you dislike? I don't really have a lot of opinions about this sentence. Okay. Uh, so let's go in alphabetical order. So uh, <laughs> I'm first. <laughs> the first question I ask myself when something doesn't seem to be beautiful is why do I think it's not beautiful? And very shortly, you discover there is no reason. A moth is a mapping, a map making creature. When it flies into a candle, it is working from an erroneous map. Perhaps the moss map says something like mating opportunities here. <laughs> a human is also a map making creature. Everyone operates from a map and the map is always getting out of date. Life, the territory described by the map moves quickly. This means that the map drifts away from the territory, eventually becoming more of a freestanding artifact than a useful guide. When there is a wide gap between the map and the world, the person who made the map feels discomfort. It has been a nice map and worked well for 50 years or five minutes, and now it doesn't work. Some data are, dis are discomforting, I mean, are disconforming the map. No, disconfirming. Disconfirming, thank you. I've ever seen that word used that way. Disconfirming the map. In this situation, unlike moths, humans have two choices. One is the path of discovery, in which the map is abandoned or redrawn over and over again. The other path is the one in which the more doubts you have about a map, the more strongly you insist that it is accurate. This is the moth's path. Because you are a human being, if you follow such a path, you will be in conflict in your heart. 
I'm thinking about Serenity and her, her map that she just described to us of her travels. It changes every day, just so you know. Good. <laughs> so does mine. Okay. Who's next? Malin. I think it's sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes it is helpful to think of maps as stories, fictions, artworks. Making up stories doesn't seem avoidable. Stories just appear in the mind, beaten or unbeaten, like the side of a tree when you round a bend. There is nothing wrong, wrong with making things up. You blame yourself, you blame other people, you guess at reasons. These are examples of made up stuff. There is a bloodline and what you are making up is drama. It is art. Yet, if you think that this art is real when you begin to suffer. Yes, yet if you think that this art is real, then you begin to suffer. You are building a prison cell to live in. It is a job of a con to take down the walls of such prisons to undermine your fictions, undermine your fictions. Then you might discover that you are not really suffering from other people or from circumstances. You are suffering from your maps, your stories, your fiction, your prison. You are suffering from bad art. Hmm. The koan, Linji said, there is nothing I dislike working with the koan. What Linji says might seem unbelievable at first. If it's more intriguing to assume that Linji is talking about something real than the opposite, then what might he be talking about? It's easy to dislike things, but what does that mean? to dislike. Dislike could mean that you are feeling a strain between how things really are and your story about how things are. Since maps are always fictions and always smaller than the territory, such a divergence happens every day. When it does, you might let go of your fiction or revise it. Usually this is not what happens. And when you insist more strongly on the validity of your fiction, you go down the path of disliking things. The path of disliking things is common. It's popular in religion and politics and leads to what the Buddha called building the house of pain. When a course of action isn't working, it's common to do it again only with more vigor. For example, some religions discriminate gravely against women. And if you take no notice of the women in a culture, the men suffer too also. Everyone will be walking around in a trance, pretending to believe that their custom makes sense. Poverty will increase, science will decrease, art will wither. And what is a likely solution? You could restrict women more, perhaps stop them from driving. You could hold heresy trials for anyone who disagrees. Also, you might make war to restore your dignity. Well, you see which way that path goes. It's called history. Must be me. When you dislike something, there is an alternative course to making war on the world or hurling yourself once more into the candle flame. In this alternative course, you might explore the fiction that belongs with your dislike. Exploration doesn't commit you to a stance, it just means you look around. If you do this, you might catch the map maker, the storyteller, the paperback writer at work. So that kind of goes back to John Cage's statement, mm -hmm. doesn't it? 
Here's a story about catching the map maker at work. A man who sometimes had difficulty managing his mind took up koan work. Then, while in a retreat, he dreamed that he was, a, was in a war, a real shoot him up. Tracers crossed the sky. Helicopter gunships <coughs> laid down heavy machine gun fire. Men with assault rifles dashed by and took cover and rashed on. He could feel the percussion in the ground as the shells hit. In this hellish situation, he was fighting and shooting and found himself willing to try anything to stay alive. Then, suddenly, in the dream, he was out of his body and could see that he was dreaming. Behind his forehead, he had a mesh screen, a mind screen, and the whole war with its desperation, anguish, noise, and loss was a film projected onto that screen. He gazed at the screen in wonder and relief. <coughs> Excuse me. Instead of being a victim, he had become an art critic. Then, with a whoosh, he was drawn back into the fighting. That is what it can be like to see through the fictions of the mind, the suffering made up of thoughts that stick to other thoughts. He saw that he was not his thoughts, and that as soon as he saw through the delusion, he was swept into it again. You might awaken and forget many times, yet you notice just once that the pain is on the mind screen, you will always have the possibility of remembering and getting free. Here's an example of how fictions can make you happy. A man said, I was abandoned and then adopted. It's terrible that I didn't grow up with my natural parents. That is a source of my problems with other people, especially women. Bath art is at work here. Bath art probably backed up by psychotherapy to boot. And at the same time, the way to undermine the fiction is clear. Fortunately, the man made this claim to a con teacher who asked, why is it terrible that you were abandoned? What if your natural parents couldn't have managed? You could, ha you could have died. And what is wrong with being adopted? Now, you know that you were wanted. Your parents went to some trouble to get you. You were chosen. There is nothing I dislike can work in the way the koan no does. Whenever you are in pain, you can look at what you're thinking and see whether you really dislike what is happening. If your suffering comes from taking up residence in a world of what should be or ought to be, then you can look at whether there is really a problem with the present moment. He left me. Well, if he wanted to, he should leave. She betrayed me. Well, that's out of my control. It's good that we're not together anymore. There is nothing there for me to do. Using the koan like this can be very freeing. Now here's what happened to a man dealing with something most people would find painful. The setup is this. His wife starts making long private phone calls. When questioned, she is evasive or bursts into tears. They have two young children. The details are cloudy and her story keeps changing. He is an engineer and likes stability in his emotional life. She confesses to having an affair. He tells her not to take this course and then realizes you can't tell such things to adults. He thinks about their very young children. He believes that the children will not be happy or successful without a steady marriage. Oh, I'm sorry, without a steady marriage. Images come unbidden. He thinks of the other man and imagines his wife in bed with the other man. She won't promise not to see that man. 
Then she does promise, but he doesn't believe her. Finally, he begins to sit still and notice. He notices that he is spending all his time on her affair. He is spending more time with the man and his thoughts than his wife is in actuality. As he sees through his thoughts, he noticed that the other man is not present unless he brings him in via his thoughts. That is, he is spending all his <coughs> time trying to influence his wife to feel differently. He also notices that this is something impossible to control how someone else feels. And then he notices that it makes him unhappy. What exactly does he dislike about his wife or the man that she's involved with? He doesn't know the man and yet has a strong dislike of him. The prescribed way. Oh, sorry, I should have stopped. <laughs> the, the prescribed way to behave around such events is fairly set. Usually there is an obligation to be hysterical, to weep and offer recriminations. Recruiting the children is also popular. There is nothing to blame if you do this, yet perhaps it is a necessary, it is, it is a necessary, just a second, I'm going to get a cough drop. What does it mean recruiting the children? Oh, pulling them in to the situation. Try, yeah, trying to make them take sides. Um, you know, saying saying bad things about the other parent, and even and though this is not something that has anything to do really with them. And I got to tell you guys, as a family lawyer, fortunately, at this point, depending on the age of the children, that's considered child abuse in the courts. So. Excellent. Excellent. When one when one of the parties is having an affair. No, when the parent pulls them in. Um, oh. And and again, it does depend on the age of the children and how they pull them in. Like making a video with your five-year-old saying, do you believe daddy and I need to stay together? Do you believe that we're a happier family when we're together? Don't you think that if if daddy leaves mommy and you, um, we won't be able to make it? I mean, there's just some awful ways parents can do that and have yeah. done that. But yeah, I love that. Um, I love that the courts recognize that that is a form of abuse. It seems sometimes um, we respond to things as we think we're supposed to respond rather than, you know, as our original nature would respond. Like, like I've heard people say, you know, someone dies and they, they, they feel guilty that they're not responding what they think is the right way, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. That's why I love this this friend of mine. He's no longer alive, but when his car, I mentioned this, his car got sideswiped and he just, it was the other side of the car and he, he just kept driving it and didn't care a thing about it. You know, now the car had a different nature. Hmm. Then it is Easter Saturday night and the man goes to bed mulling whether he needs to keep his unhappiness <laughs> there is nothing i dis uh, there is nothing i dislike in the morning he gets up he doesn't tell himself that his wife is having an affair and therefore he must be unhappy he doesn't tell himself any story at all worry about anything he can tell that this is just the beginning of a movement toward happiness yet it is a great relief he notices the impulse to make another story in which his wife forgets about the other man and their children grow up in a united family. And he feels like a good father. That is painful, too, since it might not happen. Even a good story feels off the mark. What is true is that he doesn't know what she will do. Also, the matter, matter is not only about her. He realizes that he is impacted to implicate it too. He doesn't know what he will do either. He is not pretending anything. He's just not cultivating his pain and not claiming omniscience about what disasters will happen. 
Without the story, he feels happy. Yesterday, he was a man in misery, an abandoned husband. Husband. Today, he is a man handing, hiding sorry, Easter eggs for his children. His wife joins him. There are a man and a woman hiding Easter eggs for their children. They sit on a bench and watch. He can see that the children like finding Easter eggs. The children don't have opinions about affairs and they don't think about what should be happening. They do want their father not to abandon them for the sake of his fiction that his wife should be someone other than who she is. His opinions about his wife are not important to the kids. Then he notices that nothing is missing from the moment. He is a man sitting on a bench in a garden. Nothing is wrong. There is no flaw. Does anyone want to comment? What do you think of all this? I think it requires an immense degree of, uh, of awareness and being in the moment and self, uh, self-awareness. But do you think it's possible? Yeah. yeah. I do think it's possible, but quite unlikely. <laughs> judging by um, what I've experienced of human nature in these 60 years. You see this more often, I think, when you see um, someone lose a partner, a spouse, through death, and there are children, and that remaining parent, instead of focusing on their own loss and grief, realizes that they need to hold these children and to heal these children. And so it doesn't become about them. It becomes about being a model and a caretaker. That um, feels so profoundly different than the example that they've given here where. No, no, That's, I was just saying there are other situations and, and it is profoundly different. But um, when Kim asked the question, do you think it's possible? That was the one situation I can see it in. I'm not saying I can see it in this. I can I can see it in this. It, it takes a great deal, and the time frame here um, may be, you know, um, shortened to what it would probably be. But I've seen and talked to some people where this is this is definitely a path. Um, You know, and they look inside themselves too and see that that maybe they too needed to need to take a look around and see what 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 their contribution to the to the problem is. Okay, who's reading? I think Nandia, did you read last? I don't remember. Nothing is wrong. There is no flaw. And Nelda? I, you know, I don't remember. How about you start from then on? Okay. From then on, he thinks, who knows? Maybe she will end the affair and stay. Maybe he, the husband, will leave her. Maybe she was right and he's the problem. Maybe nothing will change and the uncertainty will continue. What has changed is that he doesn't torment himself with his thoughts. He has breakfast, goes to work, comes home, has dinner, plays with the children, reads a novel. He lives, does not require the moment to be different in order to be happy. He is happy. So another way of looking at it is how many things are there in the world that one could dislike? You know, and they're infinite, right? 
Mm-hmm. You know, I dislike the man who used to be president. I dislike um, the fact that um, the neighbors at Avamada, you know, have all this garbage on the street that's that I dislike. I just on and on and on. And you could be just miserable, you know, thinking of these things, making a list of them. And he's giving an alternative, I think. So when it says in the last paragraph, I think that the man forgets that her woman is having an affair and then he is happy at that moment when he forgets that situation. Makes me think that he can accept the fact that he could be happy without that story, but because he accepts happiness as it is said in their happiness, just by himself. So mm-hmm. maybe that's an initial point for me, like to accept that you can be free or happy or etc., without the attachment to the, the stories, like from the very beginning. Because none of us have lives going exactly how we'd like them to go, right? And, and so, so then it's a choice. How are we going to take that? Hmm. It's difficult. Nandia says almost impossible. I've always admired um, Olympians because these are people in the world who have spent their, for the most part, entire childhood focused on one goal, and that is to become that, you know, that medalist, they've spent their entire childhood, their entire youth, their focus has been that one thing. Well, how many of all the competitors in whatever event medals? There's three, and they, the rest go home without one. And to be able to have put, and it's like a marriage in a sense. I, I've, I've looked at this in trying to heal my, some issues that seem like an Olympian, you know, focus and a long investment where we we can put all of this time effort and desire into something and sometimes it just doesn't happen and then the question is what then and And i've known like you know there's thousands of kids with that focus and with that training who don't even make it to be an olympian you know i knew a skater and she she was on the road but then um she grew too tall and they thought she was too tall to be a skater. And then another one was a baseball player and his shoulder started giving problems or something. And he had, he had a, a thing with the minor leagues and then he had to quit. And it was a son of a secretary in St. Louis. I mean, just one person after another, you know, who do that train. So it's not just the Olympians who do the training. Well, and it's people who go through a relationship, a marriage or raise a child and things don't work out. And the question then becomes, what now? The dream doesn't work out. The, you know, the happily ever after doesn't work out. And the question is, what now? What do I do now with my one precious life? Well, and I think too, one of the things is, especially for children, that the importance that we could convey to them is not the end goal, but the process of getting there. So if you don't make it to that end goal, did you succeed in doing the process? And if you did, you did. And if you changed your mind in the middle or it got changed by circumstance, then you just are starting another process, another trip. And I think if we could all be a little more, not that I am, please, you know, I don't know. But um, I think if we can all kind of look more at things like that, rather than always having that specific goal in mind, I think then we learn to to live with life um, in a much better and easier way. Do you think that everybody has what now 
moments? I don't think you'd be human without them. My friend, uh, he was, he's a psychologist. Um, he had been a student a long, long, long time ago. And um, he told me once that the difference between a depressed person and a person who wasn't depressed, I, maybe you've heard me say this, but if you just were to list 10 um, things happening in the world or to yourself, the number of positive things and the number of negative things. So you could say, uh, my refrigerator always has ice cream in it. So that would be a positive thing. Maybe, I don't know. Anyway, the difference between a depressed person and a non-depressed person is just one thing, like a difference of six or seven. And we often think that it's way below that, but you have a certain maybe, um, level where your your overall emotion is is like goes to one way or the other i thought that that was very interesting hmm. it, it doesn't take very much to change our our whole perspective of the world hmm. who's reading now me okay and just to add to that and by the same token, it doesn't change very much to change our whole perspective of the world. That can go either way. Yeah. Perhaps the koan, there's nothing I dislike, which at first might seem unattainable, isn't actually too much of a stretch. It might be just an observation of the natural state of the mind the natural state of a man sitting on a bench watching his children collecting Easter eggs, happy because he is given pleasure. In the Dhammapada, an ancient text, the Buddha observes how painful it is to live in the belief that you are a victim and observes too what it is to live without such a belief. He insulted me, he harmed me, he robbed me, he beat me. If you think like this, you will suffer. He insulted me, he harmed me, he robbed me, he beat me. If you do not think like this, you will not suffer. The Buddha doesn't say that nothing happened, that someone didn't beat you, that no pain was caused. He is not encouraging you to pretend that you are a robot, to go into denial or to take up positive thinking. He just says that feeding the story of suffering makes you suffer. And he doesn't say that not feeding the story of suffering will make you happy. His words are a koan. They take away the story about suffering. How happiness appears is your business. Mm -hmm. This koan raises the idea that freedom might be freedom from your own stories about life <laughs> and who you are and who you should be. When you first see that you suffer from your thoughts, you might want to get rid of the difficult, painful thoughts and put good ones in their place. This is not the koan approach. What might it be like if you got rid of the painful thoughts and didn't put anything in their place? Then you might not be struggling to make the world fit your fiction. You wouldn't suffer from bad art. I'm laughing because Melen knows I suffer from bad art. <laughs> a man and a woman could hide, would hide Easter eggs in the garden on Easter Sunday morning, and their children might find them with shouts of joy. In later years, the children might say, I like Easter. I'll always remember that Easter when we were so happy. Oh. Hmm. <laughs> When the Buddha made his discoveries, he said, I have found the builder, and I will not build the house of pain again. Without your fictions, life has simply that is full of, life has a simplicity that is full of beauty. 
there is nothing I dislike. Wow. So on that note, I will say <laughs> that as much as I dislike the cold because, and I know why, when I was five or six, my temperature went up to 106 degrees and the only way they could get it back down quickly in the hospital was to stick me in an ice bath. And so it kind of blew my, my internal thermostat. And so I have been over the years, my adult years, slowly working on getting to a point where I don't feel like I'm freezing when it's 72 degrees outside. And so I've, I've, I've been successful over time. It's taken years to the point that I now feel um, strong enough and not triggered enough by the cold that I have booked a trip to Antarctica in March. And, and I think that if I, if I, if I change the paradigm, if I change it to be an intense cold with amazing beauty, in a lot once in a lifetime opportunity that maybe that will change my attitude. I don't know that that will work with eating Peru's national dish. Pig. Um, and now that I don't eat meat, I, I don't think I'll try to fix that one. So just an update here. So I, ha I have a comment and a question about that. So uh, for me, while reading this, it has been important to notice the difference between there is nothing I dislike and the fact that specific events or experiences or even thoughts could cause pain or grief genuinely. And there are other... Um, I don't know how to explain, like uh, we have read also in the past that it is important to welcome all those and to recognize that they are there. So the distinction between not fitting and uh, being, you know, like complimenting the, um, what you dislike or your thoughts or your stories, about everything, it is very difficult, different, sorry, to deny that you are having feelings or emotions, etc. So I would like to ask you, what do you think about that? Well, one is that recognizing, oh, I'm having the feeling that X, I'm having the feeling that I'm disappointed, that takes you to a different place than being caught in disappointment. Yeah, but let's say the, the example that the, the chapter said, like you have been abandoned for whatever reason, but you have been abandoned. So you suffered based on that, no matter what you suffer, even though you try to not keep an attachment to that, right? So the balance could be, and that, that is a question, like to accept that you suffer because of that fact, even though you are not trying to get an attachment to it. So um, we've read before, and we could read it again, the two Dart Sutra where, where Buddha distinguishes between pain and suffering. And when an arrow hits you, you have pain, and then you start adding to that. Oh, I've been hit by an arrow, someone doesn't like me. You know, all these stories, all these maps, and that is what we we can choose not to we, not to go down that road. Do you guys know that the Two Dart Sutra? Mm -hmm. Yes. May I add something here? Because yes. Yes. I think, I think it. Mm, so I'm gonna I'm gonna put it in this context. Um, when you go to a doctor's office, he'll ask you for, or she will ask you for your symptoms. And you might say, I have tonsillitis. I do this all the time. I have this. I have a, an infection here or there. And repeatedly, doctors have said to me, I don't want a diagnosis. I want symptoms. And so saying you have been abandoned is a diagnosis. Saying my wife is having 
an affair, my wife is seeing another man or talking to another man or husband or slept with another man once, twice, a hundred times. That's, that's a symptom. To say I've been abandoned is a diagnosis. You don't know if you've been abandoned. And, and so um, maybe you abandoned her first or him first. I mean, I just, I, I mean, I just think we mix symptoms and diagnosis. Yeah, I would use the word fact, just facts. It was simply a fact. My wife is doing X. My wife is doing X, but to say I've been. But, but when you say symptom, it's a symptom, you know, you're suge- like inferring that there's something, it's a symptom of something. Right. So when you say I want a symptom, my wife is seeing X, you know, my my wife is not giving me attention. All the facts, you know. Facts, yeah. That's, facts. I think think of them like and that. The, the suffering is when you draw that conclusion. It shouldn't be like that. Right. That that you're being abandoned. Um, I. I love the idea that that our unhappiness comes from the disparity between the way things are and the way we want them to be. So, and often, and often has it. Thank you um, for seeing the hand. Um, I'm guessing that. Uh, so, I'm guessing this about somebody else. So, tell me if I'm wrong. But I'm guessing that when. Milan asked this question when she made the statement she started from the place I have been abandoned that was a feeling it wasn't it was I am experiencing the state of feeling abandoned not meant to be a statement of fact not meant to be a statement about the other person but an acknowledgement of what the heart was experiencing. So I just want to put that into the space. That's important. Thank you. I like Thank that. Thank you. Thank you. And and I think those things is how we look at whatever we see. So um, my youngest sister uh, is adopted. And the that that abandoned is kind of that's how you think and and in her case she's kind of said this it's how she thinks she should feel because somebody gave her up that didn't want her and i talked to her one day about that and said what if somebody gave you up because they wanted you to have a better life and, and it's your choice to make that decision. She doesn't know anything much about her birth mother, but it's your choice. And sometimes we forget that we have that choice to look at something that we don't know for sure, that we have just decided that's the way it is and say, wait, what What if it wasn't that way? Or what if I look at it differently? Um, and Lisa, what if her mother didn't want her? That doesn't say anything about your sister. That well, that's just, very true. Just and says, she, yeah, but it, it, that's what I was trying to, to get at. It's her perception of what she thinks might have happened. But that doesn't have to do with somebody But looking at her life a little bit differently and saying why would you ended up with a, with a family that did want you. So it's not necessarily a personal feeling, but I struggle with those kind of things too. It's very, it's, it's very hard to take your life and take it away from what you made up about yourself and made up about everything else. And then say, you know what, if I could, if I could just step back for a minute, not that that's going to make it better all the time or even, even be able to do it all the time. But if I can just step back for a minute, take a breath and think about it differently then can I think about my life differently where I am today? You know?
What would happen if you don't dislike yourself? Wouldn't it be so freeing if all the things that bother us stopped bothering us? I think about that all the time. Well, not all the time, but often enough. Mm -hmm. Hence, I dislike nothing, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> we come full circle. So this will be a fun one to work with, won't it? Mm. Mm. Oh, so... Uh, let's cancel next week. Okay. Because okay. I'm going to be... Um, Are you going to be with your on the road? Yeah? I'm going to be on the road. So I don't want to promise something I can't do. Okay. And then we'll start up again. We only have a few more. How many more, Nelda? One, I think one more colon. Oh. And let me take a quick look at it, Kim, just a moment. And I don't know. I'm, I would like to have, yes, one more. And I would like to finish this book with you. So I think. Oh, I really want to do that, too. Yeah. Um, so our next book, we have some choices. And one is um, a book called The Book of Serenity, which like is the, the Mayana book of koans. And it's 100 koans, so it would take almost two years. And um, we would also find commentaries by other people on those koans. The other one is a book of the um, original ancestors and their enlightenment experience. And we could do that book too first. And I'm wondering what your opinions are. Hmm. Um, what Peg suggested is if we do that book, that at the end we write our own enlightenment story. Hmm. And that could be fun. Um, so I'm fine either way, but are there opinions? How long is that one? Oh, there are 53. There are 53. Just a second, let me find it. It's not, a, it, it would not be as long as doing the cons. I know that. I like the idea of doing the cons. Who said that? Serenity? Yeah. Serenity. Yeah. And I have a question. Yes. So if we do the cons and there's nothing I dislike about either of those choices, should we change the dynamic of the of how we are working with the cons? Is there something that we could do different this time? Or well, you, okay with what we're doing? Well, I think we should discuss that. You have the suggestion, I think, that we go back to where we had 10 minutes of writing or drawing or meditating, right? Yeah, I had that idea. And I'm wondering, yes. maybe. I like the idea. How do, uh, if we did the koans, then we could talk about how we're going to do them. That would be a possibility, certainly. So, so what what good uh, quant teachers do? Well, a person would work for a koan much longer than a week, <clears throat> and there'd be a lot of individual work or work one to one work with their teacher about the koan, and they wouldn't go on to another koan until they had come to terms with the last one, you know, in real koan study. Kim, do you, uh, uh, 
I guess I'm a little confused because we've even read koans where someone, some teacher gave someone a koan and they worked with it like, what is woo for 30 years? Right. And mm -hmm. so that's where I'm I'm confused. Are, are you saying that we would have this koan, we'd work with it during the week? No, no she's, oh, go on. Yes. No, no. T uh, yeah, I, uh, you were about to explain. No. If you worked with a koan teacher, which I'm not, you would work with this koan until you had come to terms with it. And then you'd go to the next koan. And some of people do koan study and they do a, a, a group of a hundred koans, which are the koans actually that we're going to do, but we're not going to do them in that way. So we'll, you know, and you wouldn't necessarily look at any commentary on the koan. You might have just, all you might be given is, there is nothing I dislike. So he, in a sense, is, is sharing his mind of how he worked with the koan over a long period of time. That's what we've read. You know, and first you're completely confused and then you think this doesn't make sense and then you figure it out and then you figure out that what you figured out, you know, wasn't really what it was. And then you start to have experiences where the koan informs the experience and goes on and on and on. But but for us, what we're doing is getting sort of the int introduction to to that sort of thought, correct? And how well, to look at them. Yeah, but also the koans, um, they don't disappear from our mind, so they're mm -hmm. still there. <laughs> and also, I think I've told you the story where Kosho at the Austin Zen Center um, was very confused about koans, and then Reb Anderson, his teacher, said, so I want you to copy by hand the whole book of koans. And so this was at Tassahara in San outside of San Francisco. So he copied the whole book, and by the time he was through, he understood because the, the koans all inform each other too. Right. And so we get that advantage. So it's a different kind of thing than traditional koan study, mm -hmm. which is more in Rinzai and Zen. Well, for me, I, I wouldn't at all mind doing another thing of koans, although the other the other book sounds very intriguing also. So. I'm good, whichever way. I like, I love koans. Okay. And I, have, I love the commentary. And I love Malen's idea of a, a, a slight change. Um, and I, I think, I seem to recall in doing a previous koan study that we had. Malen, were you in that koan study where we had a five, 10 minute writing period or non-deal? Were you in that? Yeah. Koan? She was. So, okay. And and I thoroughly enjoyed that, seeing mm -hmm. where I was as I wrote and what the commentary was um, afterwards and hearing everybody's perspective just so opened up the koan for me. So whatever whatever y'all want to do, I'm good with. It's well, that's awesome. fine with me. Um, so anyway, we can think about it and talk about it in two weeks. Okay. Thank you. Safe travels. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now you. I have to pack, which is one of the, well, Linda's mostly packed, but it's, I'm not good at this. <laughs> Luckily, she's great. So. And are we doing writing on Thursday? Or no, because you're going to be gone, right? You'll be already gone by then. Right. I'm, we can't, I can't. Uh, oh, no, we are. Yes. Yes. Other people are going to be leading and doing everything. Right, Nadia? Oh, good. I'm leading. I don't. I don't know who's the monitor. Yeah, I Emily? think I think Emily is. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay. Excellent. Oh, actually, actually, I might even be there because that night we're um, in uh, Ch Champaign, Illinois. Yeah, I think I I can be there if assuming there's internet where we're staying. Okay. 
Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Safe you. travels, Kim. And have a Travel safe trip, uh, Milan. Thank you. Yes, See you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.